Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat. So we're on podcast number 22. I can't actually quite believe we're already on number 22. Thank you to all our listeners, old and new. My name's Joe McNamara and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, Naaman Jolka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a huge thank you to our last guest, Sarah Lajange, who discussed her experience of cancer treatment and the website she started, Ticking Off Breast Cancer. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go take a listen. It's a really informative one and great from our perspective as healthcare professionals listening to patients talk about their experiences. So I'm slightly giddy um, to be able to introduce uh, our guest for this evening, Dr. Liz O'Reardon who's going to be discussing her experience of radiotherapy, how we can improve and support um, radiotherapy experiences for our patients, and also talking about her journey and projects that she's currently involved in. So, hello, Liz. Hi, guys. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. We're really privileged to be able to get you on. And I know at the moment you're all over social media, so it's amazing (laughs) to be able to tap into that and... uh, hopefully explore maybe ways in which we can uh, we can develop our social media following so we'll be uh, asking you lots of questions after the podcast um, i'll give you all my secrets <laughs> so liz for anyone out there who maybe doesn't know you so maybe audience members who aren't uh, within oncology do you want to tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about yourself yeah sure so i was a consultant breast surgeon i was a triathlon Um, I did triathlons, I was a keen baker, that was my life. And then in July 2015, when I was 40, I just thought I had a breast cyst. I'd had a couple before, um, but that breast cyst turned out to be a uh, large breast cancer. And I was suddenly looking at having every single treatment that I gave my patients. And I thought I knew everything about breast cancer. I was an expert, I got a postgrad degree in oncoplastic surgery, you know, I I consented patients for every treatment. And the minute the tables were turned and I was on the other side, I realized how little I knew, how scared I was and how ill-prepared patients are for what's about to happen to them. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, What do you think it was that hit you most? Was it just the cancer diagnosis or was it the change in lifestyle? I think for me, so I found out a bit differently. Most patients are drip-fed information. You have a lump that you're worried about, you have a scan, you get the result. You have a biopsy, you get the result. You have your mastectomy, you get the result. You find out if you need chemo, it's drip fed. Because I'm a breast surgeon, my mammogram was normal. I had a mixed ductal and lobular cancer, but it didn't show up. And I had an ultrasound and I saw it. And I knew in that split second, it was a large cancer. I was young, I knew I'd need chemo. I knew I'd need a mastectomy. I had a good idea what my 10 year survival would be. I couldn't unknow the knowledge I had of looking after women with metastatic cancer who died. And I think it was that that fear of what might happen and that very real knowledge in my head that just made me almost switch off and go into denial. Um, it's not happening to me, it's happening to someone else. And even explaining it to my parents, they said, you're talking about a patient, why aren't you upset? We're crying. And it's like, it was it was self-preservation in a way. And it was like a weird sick sense of excitement to see what chemo would be like. I know it sounds crazy, but it's just that fear of the unknown. And then realizing I am not in control. I am a surgeon. I like to be in control. I do things a certain way. And I had to step back and let people look after me. And that was really hard as well, especially because I was a consultant. They all knew that. 
It's really interesting you say that because uh, I had thyroid cancer and uh, the first thing I said to my oncologist was, yay, I can be a service user and I can use this experience to help educate my students. And he basically just, he went white and he just went, never had anyone say that to me ever. And I was just like, oh, well, it's just a different experience, is it, that I get to use yeah. this in my teaching? <laughs> so, yeah, I, to I totally empathise with that um, and kind of distancing yourself. Um, in terms mm. of kind of what you, because you mentioned a little bit about the fact that we ill-prepare patients as a result yeah. of your experiences. What, what do we need to do better? You know, we do have an audience that are full of healthcare professionals. What is it that we have to do to be able to sort this out we can't have patients attending for surgery or chemo or radiotherapy ill prepared you know what is it that we can do better yeah that's a fantastic question i think for me as a surgeon i was actually most healthcare professionals we are very good at telling people what will happen to them so for chemotherapy we tell them you will lose your hair or you may feel sick or you may get constipation but we're not very good at telling them how to cope because we haven't had it ourselves, we don't know. That's a huge thing for me. So I didn't realize you lost all your hair during chemo. I knew you lost the hair in your head. And I asked a friend who'd been through it when my hair would fall out and she said, well, your pubes will fall out on day 10. And I went, what? I didn't know that. And I'd spent the last how many years briefly starting to consent patients for chemo. And I realized as a breast surgeon, I have to talk about radiotherapy with almost 80% of my patients. And I start the chemo conversation with many of them, but I had never been in the chemo suite. I had never talked to patients having chemo. I had never been inside a radiotherapy room. I had no idea the position my patients had to have their arm. I used to say, oh, it's just like an x-ray treatment and you might feel a bit tired, but don't worry about it. And it was just complete rubbish, especially after chemo. And I think it's really hard to get healthcare professionals to listen to patients to find out what it's really like. We often don't have that time at conferences. I'll be honest, I've left when patients get up because I want to network. I don't think I need to know. But actually, being forced to go through it made me realise that it was patients who told me how to cope, how to eat, what toothpaste to buy, how to stop my gums bleeding, all of that stuff. And another huge thing I'm really passionate about, I'm sure I'm not alone, I used to tell my patients, don't Google. I will tell you everything you need to know. Here's a pile of photocopy leaflets. Off you go. I'd swear, but I won't. It's ridiculous because the first thing I did as a consultant breast surgeon was go on Google and there's some scary stuff out there. The metastatic blogs you read. I bought 20 books because I wanted to find out what it was like to be a patient. And I think we should signpost patients to say, OK, you're having treatment for prostate cancer. This is a fantastic website, a fantastic resource. Go to this. Tell your mum to read this so you don't have to be the doctor. There's so much. I think it's interesting you said so when we spoke to Sarah Lianaga yesterday she was saying that patient voice um it, it works both ways so obviously they want to hear our expert opinion but at the same time just them telling us um I know when we spoke on the phone Liz that you were saying about how it can be very cold in the radiotherapy room so when you're on the bed mm. with the top off but no one I think you're the first person who told me actually you, don't, you can have your arms covered I've never thought of that or you can wear gloves um, yeah, that's something right. I've never said to a patient, but now I say it all the time and they say, oh, that was a really good idea. Um, I was having, is it Linux radiotherapy? They were doing my, in, my internal um, mammary nodes. So the room was even colder and I was freezing. My arms were so cold, I physically couldn't bring them down. I had to get the, radi the radiographer to actually move my arms above my head down to my waist. So what I then brought in were my cycling arm warmers. 
that I wore every time. And I was telling friends, get a pair of thick, fluffy tights and cut them up and then put those on your arms because you get really, really cold. And yeah, and obviously for anyone who doesn't know how, sometimes it does take the time for us to set you up. Um, and actually the treatment yeah. itself can only take a few minutes sometimes, but we are very fussy and we work to millimetre accuracy and sometimes and it really doesn't important. work. So, But yeah. it may be, say you're a student therapeutic radiographer, you go in the radiotherapy suite and you strip off to your top of your bra and you spend half an hour in that room just sitting or lying, not moving, just feeling what it feels like, what is the temperature of the room like, how much of an uncomfortable experience is it? It could be really interesting to get people to see, oh, okay, now I get it. Yeah. You mentioned, Liz, about with your training and that you hadn't actually seen sort of the room. Um, mm. I suppose if you don't mind me asking, when you were training stuff, what did you, what were you taught about radiotherapy? Nothing. We had the lectures at medical school and as a junior and then a senior trainee, my time was spent on the wards and in theatre and in clinics. I didn't have time to go to all the other stuff because I was service provision you are trying to be a consultant surgeon and I think breast cancer is probably one of the few surgical specialities that has a, has a lot of radiotherapy input and my fellowship at the Royal Marsden where I didn't have a timetable it was still I need to learn to operate I was going to the geneticists and the plastic surgeons I didn't even think about going to the radiotherapy suite because the consultants oncologists looked after all of that it wasn't my business I just told patients to go and the information I gleaned was of what patients told me or what I thought or what I read from a leaflet. But I think it's ridiculous when, if I'm consenting someone for a lumpectomy, she is going to have radiotherapy. And I have never heard what my own colleagues say to patients. I don't know what they're told. I've never seen it. I've never spoken to patients about it. I see them come back with side effects, but I'm, don't, I'm not really the expert in telling them how to handle it. But we're assumed to have that knowledge because of what we do. And, but it's hard to get a trainee and say, as a trainee doctor or a nurse, you say, okay, can you come in on your day off and go to the radiotherapy suite and see what it's like? It's my day off, man. You know, it's, it's really, and I'm sure radiotherapy isn't the only thing that we don't see. You, we send people off for tests, like CT scans. The, that feeling of wetting yourself when you are on the CT scan as the contrast goes through, and every time I have to put my hand between my legs and check, have I just wet myself? No, it's just the contrast. Who knew? <laughs> You know, it's, it's these little things that we just do to patients and until you are that patient. Like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. Yeah, that's not something I would have thought of telling a patient, to be honest. Um, but I know you, you've touched on um, sort of consenting patients. What was your, mm. I know we spoke about this before as well, but what was your own sort of experiences from speaking to patients about radiotherapy and sort of reflecting back now? I just told them they'll have three weeks of radiotherapy it's a bit like an x-ray treatment you'll be able to work through it you might feel a bit tired and you might get some skin burning but they'll tell you what creams to use that was basically it I was telling them they would need it I wasn't doing the formal consent but actually because I lived in Suffolk my radiotherapy was Addenbrooke's and it was a probably a good hour hour and a half trip each way by the time you got there you got parked and you walked your way all the way through the hospital to the radiotherapy unit and then you could have to sometimes wait two or three hours if there was a child having an anaesthetic. So actually, it was a good three, four hour round trip every day from seven o'clock in the morning to seven o'clock at night, driving myself because my husband was working. And that took its toll. I was exhausted. And I know it's worse because I had it after chemo, but that, that fatigue that builds and builds and builds. 
I didn't realise that you would get painful swallowing when you have your super club area done. And that awful throat, the pain in the throat, the difficulty speaking and swallowing and food going off again. I had no idea. And the burning, the not being able to have anything close to your skin. It was, um, but the, the biggest thing, and I think a lot of patients talk about this, is the emotional mind F-U-C-K, yeah. of lying there topless in a room without your armor on, with your hands above your head, whilst the wonderful radiographers work around you, but you are just left to your own thoughts. And when I was having it done, God, I can make me cry, there were a load of stickers on the roof of a machine for the children to look at, kind of Spider-Man and Beauty and the Beast. And I just thought, God, I'm struggling, but there are children who have to lie here. And it was really, that's when the reality of cancer hit, when I was lying in that machine yeah we often it wasn't just an x-ray treatment yeah we often Liz find that actually patients who get to us in the radiotherapy department it's at that point that they've just got time to think so you know like chemo everything is quite rapid when you get on the cancer pathway there is this time pressure to go quickly and you know there's so much to achieve and sort out and consent to and then it's those 10 15 minutes that patients have lying on a couch you know listening yeah. to us reading out our numbers listening to the whirring of the machine listening to the air conditioning um and you are truly alone yeah there is no one else in that room for probably the first time in your treatment yeah that's really really insightful did you did you have any music or anything whilst you were having radiotherapy were you offered it i I think I was offered it and I think you can't really hear it with a wearing. It's a bit like an MRI scanner. Um, I wasn't really bothered. I was just in my own thoughts. I don't think music would have distracted me. It was, it was a real, I feel sorry for myself. Yeah. I really felt like a patient and it was, it just, it just wore you down. And then I felt really bad. There was, there was an old man who'd obviously had prostate cancer and he was told you've got a bit of dementia. He had to have a full bladder for the treatment. He didn't quite understand. And he wanted to have a wee and they were saying, no, you have to drink. And then thought, I'm, I'm topless, but I'm not lying there with my trousers by, yeah. down by my ankles, with my groin exposed. God, that would be even worse. That, these things never, they never really hit your attention until you suddenly see other patients going through it. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, d- I definitely think that we see patients coming for radiotherapy and it's been played down. And it's sometimes yeah. really difficult for us when we're kind of having to support patients who've already been through through so much and they almost are like, oh, I'm on the home straight now. This is the yeah, easy bit. Yeah, it's just an and x-ray. You, and you yeah. almost know in your heart of hearts that that isn't going to be the case and that actually we do really have to support patients a lot as they go through radiotherapy. Um, I know, Liz, you wrote an amazing book. We've actually, uh, we've just got it for the library for all of our students to oh, read. Oh, thank you. So, um, and I know that you're working on another one as well, which is really exciting. And um, there was part of the book that um, the audience who know me well will know that I did a bit of a like, oh, Liz, uh, which is where you referred to us as radiotherapists. Liz, why was yeah. that? That was what I knew you as. That's what I'd heard my colleagues call the therapeutic radiographers. You were the radiotherapists in the radiotherapy department. And it's like, I know you're not the doctors, you're not the consultants doing it. So I had no idea what you're involved. I just, just thought we all called you, you know, the radiotherapists. But it's a bit like surgeon slang. So we'll laparotomize someone and we'll appendicectomize someone. Just a radiotherapist, you know. And I'm really embarrassed to say that I actually had no idea the training that you go through. 
where you've come from, what you do. And I'm really, really sorry. <laughs> and I will now make sure that you are the therapeutic radiographers because you are. You are not, in my head, you're just like x-ray technicians, yeah. but you are so much more than that. So where, where do, how do you become a therapeutic radiographer? So um, there are only 11 higher education institutes in the country that actually offer really? radiotherapy and oncology training. So they're either called radiotherapy and oncology courses and it is a BSc, mm -hmm. so it's part of the allied health profession. So we typically sit alongside yeah. physiotherapy, occupational therapists and things. Um, but um, we are a really small profession and we do struggle to promote ourselves, which are, it was really interesting when I read it because I thought this is very typical of what I've observed as part of my kind of recruitment and retention workforce uh, research that I've been involved in, which is that we don't tell patients that we are therapeutic radiographers and we almost kind of when a patient refers to us as a nurse you kind of nod politely and go mm -hmm, yeah that's fine or, or I've had that too yeah but but yeah no it's, you, you don't want to interrupt them because it's not about you yeah. but actually yeah it's your title you've worked blooming hard to get it yeah and it's almost educating the healthcare professionals referring patients to you do you know what we do? Yeah. And I guess you're often locked away in a little tower, aren't you? You're kind of put out of the way in that you don't mix with the rest of the MDT body, really, because you're so busy doing your job. So yeah. they don't really get to know you either. Which which I do think then has a negative impact on maybe how we do escape from the radiotherapy department. Not that we mm. want therapeutic radiographers to escape, but actually our whole degree is oncology focused. We're the only healthcare professional from an allied health background that specializes in oncology um you know if you were to talk to me about dementia i'd have a little bit of knowledge if you were to yeah. talk to me about diabetes i'd have a little bit of knowledge but actually if you talk to me about oncology we teach our students immunotherapy surgical techniques wow we, we talk about dosimetry you know um the fundamentals of I'm physics um theory of relativity humbled. you know there's so much that we in my head <laughs> in my head the consultant gets the clever CT scan and maps it out and you guys just plubbing numbers and get me in the right position. <laughs> that, seriously, that's that literally all I thought you'd do because that, that's all I'd seen, I guess, as a consultant surgeon. And then as a patient, you're the guys that move me around and go into the room and play with the numbers and the screens and stuff happens. And I assumed it's the consultant, who's, my oncologist, who sat down with a scanner. I am so sorry. Well, for for people listening across the world, that is probably the case. So in other places where they are radiation technicians, they may be more referred to as a button pusher, which is what I've been called a lot, um, where you would have somebody in a white jacket sitting with you, watching you do all the work, and they're there to supervise you. That's how it works in some mm. countries, especially countries where they only have one linear accelerator for the entire country. That's that pressure on the one oncologist who works yeah. seven days a week, three, six, five days a year. Um, I think now the role is becoming far more advanced across the world, especially with more kind of advanced practitioner routes. Um, so I know Joe said there's the BSc route. There are mature students who come in, so like me, as a master's route. So you have that initial experience mm -hmm. as an undergraduate in something else or something science-based. Uh, and then now the advanced practitioner routes, obviously there's more site specialists where we can take on, for example, for breast. So planning the treatment as well, uh, consenting patients and 
you know, yeah. kind of everything to late effects as well. So lo lots of roles that I think are quite new to our field, but we're able to do it. And I think some of the themes from some of the people we've had on so far, which I'm sure Joe will be able to back up, is um, sort of the lateral thinking that we have as a radiographer. So working in the dark, green laser lights on, um, doing crazy calculations in our head and then moving the bed in different angles and whatever for yeah. that extra yeah. one millimetre best coverage. <laughs> um, that's something I think very unique i suppose for our profession you are very you are very highly skilled and i'm embarrassed to say i had no idea that you did half of it but it's fantastic to learn and i think it's educating the guys who refer people to you do you know what we do come and have a look i know liz i'm already thinking that i know Naaman is as well we're going to use this podcast and we're going to share it with all our oncologists and our surgeons in our trusts to go have a listen I actually, <laughs> I, I actually think say the breast team Every part of that team should spend a session looking at what the other person does. Yeah. Go and actually see what happens when they're doing a therapeutic um, I've got a mammoplasty, when they are reducing a breast, removing a cancer, reshaping it. So you just see the pretty scar, but actually the four hours of a bomb site yeah. and how we put it back together. Go and look at someone having chemo all that and actually respect each other and learn what you do. And I think a, a business day afternoon of actually just looking at what everyone else does might be amazing to really connect a team and understand. Yeah. The roles you will have to play and how we can all help each other we are doing get a lot patients more. consented properly we are doing a lot more integrated work now in terms of education but for a lot of university yeah. what is sad is that the medics are usually separate so you'll have yeah. all the allied health professions and nursing students learning together um whether that be a bsc msc on the apprenticeship um and yet unfortunately you don't then have access to the medics um, so I definitely no. think that needs to feature as part of those clinical placement. Although I wonder, as a medical student, you really have no idea what speciality you're going to yeah. do and you're just learning stuff to pass an exam. And actually, it's when they've passed their, I guess, their first exam. So they're kind of an ST3-4 where they're kind of thinking, OK, I want to be a surgeon. I want to be a medic. I know what I want to do. And they're starting to get a specialist interest that's when they need that input yeah. because they're going to remember it because they know they need to know it does that make sense yeah absolutely you do do a lot of work don't you liz now in kind of educating mm. healthcare professionals how are you finding that it kind of fell about by accident um so my breast cancer came back locally on my chest wall a couple of years later which meant more surgery and another dose of radiotherapy and that was really unpleasant we can talk about that later but i kind of lost my job because I wasn't helping people I was forced to retire after the side effects and by by going and talking to medical students and junior doctors and nurses it was just a way of helping them improve the care of patients and I think I'm in because of my unique position doctors and nurses will listen to me and give me the time of day and respect what I'm saying and I hate that so many amazing patient advocates struggle to get their foot in the door but I try and speak for all of them to say often it is just the little things that matter. You don't know that what you say has a huge impact or have you thought about this? And I find it really, really rewarding now. Um, just sharing my story and knowing if I can make a difference to one patient's care the next day, it's all been worth it. I suppose it comes on quite nicely to what sort of healthcare professionals, what do you think healthcare professionals should be kind of saying to support patients making sort of informed decisions? That's a really good question and I'd like to think that we all practice shared decision making but I know I didn't and there's a complaint I remember really clearly. Um, if someone has a small cancer in a large breast we recommend a wide local excision and radiotherapy. 
why would anyone remove a, a breast when you don't need to? And we, I very rarely offered patients a mastectomy as an alternative because they didn't need it surgically. It's the same results. And I remember a woman had put in a complaint and it was because she didn't realize a friend of hers in another hospital had been offered a mastectomy instead, which meant she could avoid radiotherapy. And my patient really, really struggled with the effects of radiotherapy, really bad fatigue, really bad pain. And she hated the fact that I hadn't told her it was an option. And I think we get a lot of patients asking, what would you do? What would you advise? And you can't put yourself in their shoes. And it's really hard to think someone would do something that makes no sense at all. But it is their choice. And then you need to counteract what they read in the media, what they found online, and how do you know that they're understanding statistics? So this is a huge thing. We are very numerically literate as a profession. We are very good at understanding relative risk and absolute risk. Um, but if an article in the paper says bacon doubles your risk of breast cancer, a lot of the general public think, well, that's a 50% chance. It's not. And how you can explain statistics, maybe using 100 white dots and colouring in them so patients actually understand the statistics we roll off the top of our head. Hmm, that's an interesting way to put it. Um, when, when you had your treatments, Liz, how were you supported mm. with an informed decision? Well, it was really weird because I was treated by a consultant surgeon who was a friend, who was a trainer, who was a mentor. I knew what she was going to say um, and I knew what I was going to have. The hard decision I had was, do I have a reconstruction? And it was mainly due to vanity and because I'm very slim. If I went flat, I'd never grow enough of a tummy to have a Dieppe. Um, but the minute she was telling me that the, this could cause a clot in the lung or it could cause this, it's like, oh, this is actually quite serious. I'd never got the gravitas of what I was saying to patients because you go into your spiel and you do this and this and this and this and this. And you think, oh, but that might happen to me. That might happen to me. And I had a real shared decision making when my when my cancer came back and it had come back in an area where I'd had radiotherapy the first time and I'd had chemotherapy and I'd had tamoxifen and they said, we don't know what to do. We could give you another dose of radiotherapy to the same area but it could cause all sorts of problems like frozen shoulder, um, brachial plexopathy, permanent lymphedema, stiffness, you name it. She'd only done it a couple of times. And it might still come back because it was obviously radio resistant. Or you don't do it and then it does come back and then surgery is really hard. We're looking at removing your chest wall. What do you want to do? I'm not an expert and there are no trials in this. There are no studies. I don't know who to ask and it was... My husband wanted me to do everything because he couldn't bear the thought of me dying before my time. But I'm potentially the one who has to live with horrendous side effects and complications. And it was really, really, really hard. And in the end, I went for it. Um, but it did mean I have permanent reduced use of my left arm. It meant I had to retire. I have chronic pain because of that. And it was you don't get the decisions patients have to make until they are living with the consequences of those decisions that are irreversible. And I think it's hard to think rationally when you've got a cancer diagnosis because it just screws with your brain. Yeah, I think having all the knowledge is sometimes overwhelming because you're constantly playing yeah. head and heart all the time, aren't you? And managing it's family. Um, I think that I, adds yeah. definitely another dynamic um, that patients often refer to, the fact that they have maybe thoughts and feelings about their own mortality and about yes. what they can cope with and friends and family are very different. Did you find, you know, having a cancer diagnosis, everyone knowing you as being the surgeon, did you find that yeah. hard amongst friends and family? Did you lose friends as a result of kind of having to go through cancer? 
That's a really interesting question. So I, I started blogging and tweeting about my breast cancer the day I got my results because I knew I wasn't going to wear a wig during chemo. People would recognize me. I wasn't ashamed of it. And I thought, I, I can't not talk about this for nine months. And I discovered a whole load of friends through Twitter and people got in, like a friend, she knitted me a Wonder Woman doll set behind me. Um, she was at school with me when I was 13. I'd lost touch completely. And then um, she just got in touch and it was really, really nice. Some friends distanced themselves and I just think they found it too hard to cope with the thought of me going through it. And you realise and you that, realize that the friends you think are therefore you aren't and that doesn't mean they're bad friends. It's just, it can be quite hard to cope with it. I went into work a couple of times but it was really interesting going back because certain people didn't recognise me. I remember talking to one of the general surgeons and I used to have really long, thick, wavy hair and I kind of said, you don't know who I am, do you? No, I recognise the voice. Oh, it's you. And then I met a urologist who didn't realise what had happened. He said, well, you, oh, well, you know, I'll be off for you. I've had breast cancer chemo. He started crying. And that really threw me because I'd been so open about it all. Um, but the hardest thing I think is you are going to have colleagues who have had cancer. It's one in two of us. Breast cancer is one in eight. We're a largely female workforce. And I was in the first MDT back after my first cancer diagnosis. And the first patient could have been me. Give or take a year older, a centimetre tumour. Mine was 13 centimetres, hers was 14. I had three lymph nodes, she had four. She could have been me. And the pathologist went through the results and I heard everyone in that room go, shit, that's bad. And they didn't know they were talking about me and they couldn't know they were talking about me because they had to be able to get that emotion out. But that was so hard for me to hear my colleagues say what I already knew. And I almost think... Our colleagues need training to help. I know several, I know several um, radiologists who find it very hard to look at x-rays of people with metastatic cancer because it could be them and everyone's on eggshells and it's how you help get that a normal working relationship and get that emotion out and be able to talk without upsetting or offending people. And that's really hard, especially if you don't know they've had cancer. I think it's, it's difficult to broach that conversation anyway. Um, mm. in any aspect because mm. it doesn't have to be that they had cancer treatment they could have been off for something else or it could have been benign condition or a miscarriage or exactly. exactly and yeah the miscarriage one is something I've seen through a couple of friends and one of my friends had a miscarriage and I remember lots of people saying oh have you had cancer you don't look like you've had cancer she's, she's just like oh okay I'm going to stay out of this I've just yeah. I've had some time off I needed the time off but as you said in a workplace it's really difficult because you especially in healthcare you're on top of each other you're fighting for the last chocolate in a box. You're there next to each other every day, all the time. It's difficult not to know about something changes, but there's that ironic. Yeah. And we're all curious. We're all curious. We're all nosy. We're all nosy. Yeah. Um, you kind of feel, and again, this is the thing. I was, um, I was wheeled down the corridor for my mastectomy, bold as a coot, in my gown with my paper knickers. And I met a load of anaesthetists I knew. I kind of said, hi, how are you? What are you having done? I'm going to have my left breast cut off. What are you having done? You see people you recognise and you want to know what's going on. You say, hi, how are you? I'm in a colorectal bleeding clinic. What do you think I'm here for? I think if they're not your friends and you're not WhatsApping them at the weekend, then you just nod the head and move on and don't talk to them because they are, you're almost breaching their patient confidentiality. And I think if you are someone who's had an illness and people don't know, you need one person at work you can tell that you've had a wobble. I'm just going to go to the loo for a five minute cry. Can you cover for me? One person has to know to give you that support when you need it. And before you come back, plan how you're going to explain your absence. What are you going to say? Because people are going to ask. It's something I hadn't prepared for. Um, do you think it's important? Get your do you think it's important to have to have an explanation? 
No, but I think if you've, no, been, but I think if you've been off for any length of time, people are going to ask. And your immediate, and you, your immediate may know, colleagues may know, but with nurses change shifts, people come and go, well, I've not seen you for ages, what's wrong? And it can, it can hit you if you're having a wobble. And actually preparing what you're going to say and telling your line manager, do you want them to tell them, say, everyone, Liz has been off with cancer, she doesn't want to talk about it, she's fine now, don't keep asking her on the coffee break, how are you, she's back at work. All these kind of little things that can just help you prepare so you can go back to work and be as normal as you can. I think as well, um, it's been researched now about empathy fatigue amongst healthcare professionals. And I think sometimes yeah. we're so passionate and supportive of our patients and, you know, we go above and beyond trying to kind of ensure that they are able to cope through whatever treatment it is they're having. And yet you have a colleague who's off with mental health. I know kind of lots of um, friends who are doctors and they always say, you know, they're suffering with mental health issues and they're like, I can't possibly have time off because of how the, my friends, my peers at work yeah. will deal with that. Um, and I've I've been in that situation. Yeah. I, I didn't realise how hard it was to tell 10 women a day they had cancer and absorb the emotion from them and their partners and then to go home and just turn into Liz the wife. We don't get coaching. We used to see so much. The kids, the, you know awful really heartbreaking cases but do you guys get coaching to cope with it or counseling you can do additional training and um as part of the undergraduate and things you get some small lectures but but day to day there's nothing there's nowhere to go and i just think i was off of stress but that the shame and the guilt of ringing my consultant and saying i've been signed off sick for a month I meant to operate tomorrow and you know there's no one to cover there's no list you know you are leaving them in the lurch but it's not safe for you it is awful whereas if you've broken your leg sorry broken my leg can't come in for a month oh okay you feel like it's your fault that you're not mentally resilient enough whereas you forget it's i think at the moment it's very well it's it's an issue that's always been around so let's say like racism or lgbtq plus problems everything these problems have always been there but now we're talking about them more so when they're at the forefront of people's minds they people will start to think okay i'm not ready to talk about it to liz or joe but i can talk to my partner about my partner about it or my friend as you said so someone you can wobble to at work or the bystander effect i think it's something in my role in review when i speak to patients they so today i had a, a a palliative patient who lovely but to me, no, I'm fine. I've got no problems. The wife just sort of looks at him. Okay, are you sure about that? And then she started to rattle off everything, everything. And I'm there like, oh, okay. I wasn't expecting this whatsoever. But that's the the dynamic that at the moment where people have been at home, not going out, you do only have that loved one with you. And if you're going back into work, everyone's got their own issues, but no one's quite ready to approach other people about them yet. It's going to happen soon. I think at the moment, there's lots of people in the NHS who are knackered, me included, but soon people are going to start well maybe not getting cranky at each other but it's coming up to I think you do I think we have so much empathy for the patients we are struggling to look after that we treat our colleagues pretty badly because they're all short fuses and we're snapping and everyone's got their own problems but you don't care because just you're just trying to deal with your own because the pressures of you guys the work you're having to do the ridiculous backlogs we're going to have trying to catch up it's not it's not a safe way to work but you have no choice and you kind of hope that if three people need to break and go off sick, well, who goes off first and can you all go off sick? It's just that that double-edged sword, isn't it, of service provision and treating patients. And when, when do you realise you're a patient yourself? Yeah. Liz, it's so hard. You mentioned about 
obviously having quite severe side effects that obviously Mm. affected you a lot more can you expand a little bit on that what was it that kind of led to you having to retire so the radio I had I'd had a breast reconstruction um, and I had radiotherapy to the chest wall because I had a large tumor and what that did was cause a tight hard capsule around my implant and I I almost had Tourette's syndrome I was swearing out loud because of spasms in my pec muscle from the radiotherapy to it because I've got very thin skin and I was planning to go flat anyway because of the pain when they found the local recurrence. So I had radiotherapy again to the edge of the petrol muscle, the shreds of it, because it was taken away. And there was another scar in my armpit because I'd had an auxiliary clearance before that. And I'd had bad cording all along, kind of auxiliary web syndrome, which I didn't really understand as a surgeon. But the cording got a lot worse, running from the scar down my tummy as well as up the arm. Really thick cords I couldn't snap. Really bad tethering of the scar to the fascia of my serratus and my pec. Um, and I could almost had a frozen shoulder. I couldn't lift my arm any more than 90 degrees. Um, and with a lot of physio, I managed to get a bit of movement back, but I didn't have the weakness. And most breast surgery you can do with your arms by your side, but for the recon stuff, you've got to get up in really weird positions. And my left arm was my pulling, retracting arm, and I just couldn't do it. But psychologically, I didn't think it was safe for me to see people with breast cancer having had a recurrence myself because I just wasn't mentally ready and it was almost a relief to walk away from what was becoming quite a difficult role having been in the patient's shoes but then you are left people think I look great but I have Botox every couple of months to the pec muscle to stop the spasms and I have chronic pain and I get issues with the cording and you live with it and it's the things that people don't see that can be really really hard and when it happens to you there's a lot of god I wish I hadn't done that but yeah exactly and I know on your social media on your own podcast as well um you've talked about sort of the impact of treatment can have on sex and sex life and intimacy um I Mm. suppose did you want to well would you feel comfortable discussing that a little bit yeah no I no completely I've I've spent most of the lockdown talking about this so I think for breast cancer patients it's two-pronged it's the the impact on your body image your sexuality you can often lose sensation in your breasts they can become hard and firm after radiotherapy or the surgery you may have them removed the skin is numb you lose an erogenous zone you may not find yourself attractive you forget how to flirt when you don't have hair and breasts and boobs to put in a bra with a cleavage it's really weird thinking how did I used to feel sexy again I've lost I've lost what I used to do as well as the effects of the menopause and because estrogen is a lubricant it makes your vagina dry and tight sex can be painful and when i had my ovaries removed i stopped producing estrogen i have no sex hormones i never ever want sex and it's really hard explaining to your husband that you still fancy him but you don't you'd, you actually would rather have a cup of tea and you have to force yourself to start things and then you get in the mood but that is really really hard and i learned through talking to other women about what had worked for them like lubricant is fantastic and go and get a small vibrator and it should be fun and messy and you can have it again i've spoken to colorectal patients who've asked their surgeons what do they do with a stoma on a one-night stand because they want to go out they're they're single they want to have sex and he looked horrified and actually i spoke to sam sam evans um sam talk sex on my podcast saying actually you can get some really taste tasteful high-waisted crotchless knickers that you could use to disguise a stoma whilst you're having sex and all the people having pelvic radiotherapy and the impact that has. And I just wonder who is talking to them about it. I remember talking to colorectal patients having anterior resections and I would consent them to say, you may get retrograde ejaculation and you may not get an erection. Bye. 
No idea who talked to them about how they got an erection or how they had sex again. Not my job. Never had a lecture in it. Never heard a colleague or a boss talk to patients about sex. And it's a huge issue because it's almost a basic human need and almost every cancer treatment affects patients' sex lives. And the easiest thing in the world is just to ask patients, how's sex? They may not want to talk to you. And you may not be the person to give them advice, but you can easily find out. I didn't realise, and I'm talking a lot, my own hospital had a sexual counsellor for cancer patients. And I didn't realise they had it until I went back to talk to Grand Round three years later. Wow. You can find out where to send patients for help. But, but just by asking, how sex? We know this radiotherapy treatment can affect this part of your life. You're not alone. Yeah. we. It is something that we're putting loads of emphasis on, I know, from an undergraduate Fantastic. education perspective um because yeah. it is so important just to have those conversations and be open and you know i i had a simulation session the other week and mm-hmm. one of the questions i asked the students doing role play um i love to yeah. think of myself as an actress uh i'm like right can i have sex whilst having radiotherapy and you get 18 19 year olds looking absolutely horrified how can my lecturer be having this conversation with me and i'm like and she's old and she wants to have sex not that old liz <laughs> <laughs> in their eyes i know we don't we don't talk about it with each other we talk about our friends but it's that you don't yeah. talk about sex with your doctor yeah. and a patient would ask me so what i read a forum someone asked is it safe to have sex during chemo because i'm scared my husband's hair will fall out yeah yeah we don't know where to ask so we go online yeah. and actually you need to say it is okay to have sex you can do this give sachets of lube out to every patient just have them like a bag of sweeties yeah. you know Take this home and try. You know, there are things you can do. We just need to make it it's normal. For God's sake, we stick our fingers in places the sun doesn't shine. We do embarrassing things to people. We should be able to talk about sex. Yeah, absolutely. And when uh, when we get all start buying shares in lubricant uh, companies yes. and the Liz Aridan effect on our podcast where every therapeutic radiographer starts handing out sachets, Naaman and I can be, uh, can be famous for that. <laughs> Oh, but why not? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, if you are giving pelvic radiotherapy, you have silicone dilators. You have that kit to say, before you go, we know this treatment can affect your sex life. In this room, there's some things you can play with, have a look at. If you want to explore, you know, books about sex and how you talk about it, you could have that there in the waiting room just for people to start talking and just exploring it there because i'm sure their oncologists aren't talking about it and their gps aren't talking about it i always remember actually lecture over well yeah (laughs) i was remembering clinical though i remember almost having a conversation with one of my senior members of staff going joe you take too long to have these conversations with women and I just went, I can't, I can't reduce how much I, time I'm spending because it is, I realise how important it is. And I think that is one of the issues that a lot of healthcare professionals face is that there is not enough of us. There is not enough workforce to be able to have these conversations. So even if you do have a highly educated workforce who feel really confident to have these conversations, you know, they're doing all the continual professional development to be able to engineer these conversations. I think ultimately, if you haven't got the time or patients feel rushed, it's just not conducive. Um, no. and that's a and systemic time, issue that really needs time is a huge issue i used to get 10 minutes to tell someone they had cancer i had 10 minute appointments and most women are a one-stop in and out breast pain it's a cyst you never knew how many cancers you were going to get 
and you suddenly had to fill that slot and you, you went over you were almost like one or two hours late and as a patient when you know a clinic is running late and you can see the people next to you who are after you you don't want to take up any of their time you just want to get in and out quickly and all those really important questions you were braving yourself up to ask it's fine it can wait it's the same with radiotherapy if your machine's delayed you're waiting you you know those people after you you don't want to take up any more of your time but we should make patients say look this is for you what questions do you have before i start my bit what's on your yeah and i think it's nice that you mentioned sam evans so i was quite lucky to get her on and she's great fun to chat to um very very insightful oh she's fantastic <laughs> exactly she is I was just about to say that. um she yeah learned a lot from her um and, and we've had lauren as well lauren colfield is a, a consultant therapeutic radiographer in oxford um yeah. who kind of runs up the, the sexual care clinic there and then william Kennard at uclh uh, for prostate patients but just from the talk with sam and lauren i think for me working in re in treatment review sort of speaking to some some of the younger breast patients who've been sort of forced to go into menopause i think i've initially probably wasn't as confident to talk about these sort of things with younger patients just feeling okay i'm relatively young i feel a bit uncomfortable but actually I, I, after what sam lauren and will have said you know yeah. it's really important i just someone needs to start doing it um so i did get some quite nice feedback which um sam passed on so as you said i didn't exactly know everything this young uh, patient's going through but just directing her to sam's page i did have yeah. to say please don't think i'm weird that i'm sending you to sam's website which has got lots of different toys etc on there um, but when she did get the kind of help from sam um yeah just some of the the feedback was really nice that actually Although she was surprised that it was the male therapeutic radiographer who mentioned it, it was just nice to know that something was still there. Um, and actually, she she was around my age, um, so around 28. Yeah. So it's quite scary to think that, unfortunately, throughout the whole pathway, not been mentioned once, and it was me. No one talked to me. No one talked to me about it, and I never really talked to my patients about it because I didn't get what they were going through. They hadn't told me, I hadn't asked. I will put my hand up. It was only when I was a patient with an instant sudden menopause and lack of libido, I thought, is this my life? And I think, actually, that, that therapeutic, the review at three months is quite a nice time when things are settled down. And actually, just to tell patients, a lot, we know a lot of women who've had your treatment have problems with their sex life. How are things? You might not want to talk to me, but these are some great resources you can go to for support. Even that's enough. Just letting them know it's normal to have problems and they could talk to their GP. They could go to the Joe Devine website. That is fantastic. I applaud you for doing what you're doing. It's just keep doing. We need to get more people doing it and just saying, this is a problem. This is where you can go if you want to. Oh, perfect. Thank you, Liz. I really do hope everyone listens to that. So we're coming to the end of our podcast, although I know that we no. could probably carry on talking for the rest of the night. Um, but Liz, final question. Are there any top tips that you really want the audience to go away thinking about? You know, is there anything in practice? I know we've given lots of hints and tips throughout the podcast, but from a pa just purely from a patient's perspective, what do you want going forwards? Wow, what a great question. And how do I condense this into a five-minute answer instead of a three-hour answer? I think it's remembering that patients are people and they're scared and they're vulnerable and they're frightened. And what is very, very normal to you in the oncology field is new and scary for the patients. And they'll have seen and overheard things in patients next to them or online. And 
you're seeing that a really emotional time in their lives and it is a chance just to actually ask questions outside the box how are you anything you want to tell me I know your husband's outside anything you want to get off your chest almost be kind of a bit of a therapist and just give them that chance to to say what's really on their mind I think never belittle a symptom I never got what fatigue was how can you be really tired because you've never experienced it and I just think it's how can you help them live their best life after you finish treating them and just and then and the second thing I would say is is find out who is sending patients your way and consent them to make sure patients are getting that information from the top so they know what to expect and if you don't know how to help them make sure you know where to send them to oh thank you so much so you've been listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been me, Joe McNamara, and my co-host, Naaman Jolka Anderson. A huge thank you again to our guest, Dr. Liz O'Riordan, for being so open and honest with us and leaving us with lots of food for thought. If you're using this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and literature discussed within the podcast. To receive your CPD accredited badge, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. So I am really pleased to announce that our next guest to feature will be the amazing Steve Bland from You, Me and the Big C. I can't believe I've actually said that because it's one of the first ever oncology podcasts that uh, I ever started listening to. So please do stay tuned, keep listening and subscribe and like the posts that we have via social media. So take care, everyone, and good night. Thank you. Thank you.